What's up guys, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety does exactly what it says on the tin. We're here to challenge the perception. We're here to challenge the stereotype, to challenge those health and safety gone mad practices. And we do that by providing you with in-depth conversations and simple guidance on the podcast and on YouTube. So if you're new here, hit that subscribe button. If you're on any of the podcast platforms, click follow, click like, click subscribe, whatever the button is, so that you can not miss out on any of these conversations. Today we're talking to the president of IOSH and probably one of the most influential people in health, safety, culture, behavioural-based safety, etc., etc., um, in the game right now. We're talking to... Andrew Sherman, as you already know, I'm a massive fan of his work. He's a professor of leadership and safety culture. He's a president of IAS. He runs a international consultancy and coaching business to helping corporate leaders kind of improve their safety culture. He talks all over the world. He's done TED Talks, which we'll link in the description below. Um, we'll link Andrew's website as well. We've done a book review of one of Andrew's books, Accidents to Zero, but he's written a myriad of books so go and check them out as well um so without further ado let's get into the podcast health and safety is almost a victim of its own success we're in a pressure regime of health and safety regulation a huge fire engulfs a tower block in children being forced to wear goggles to play conkers at school worst oil field disaster 164 dead rebranding safety the modern health and safety podcast, Crushing the Stereotype. Brought to you by Risk Fluent and your host, James McPherson. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Um, I promise I'll, uh, I'll keep my fanboy into a minimum because I am a fan of your work. <laughs> Um, but why, why don't you start off by just giving us a bit of a, uh, a summary of kind of your journey to how you became who you are now? Um, I think I was always who I am now. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess you mean in, in terms of uh, my, my progression uh, in safety as a career. So yes. look, it wasn't my first choice, to be honest. Uh, as, as, a young, uh, as a young man, my first career choice was as an engineer. I was a chemical engineer following in the footsteps of my father. Um, and in my early 20s, I, uh, I was working for a large multinational organization as a process engineer, making an addition of some, some chemicals to a process line one day. And I wasn't really paying attention, to be honest. I, I, I was young and thinking about the weekend and the rugby match and going out with some friends. I was trying to have a conversation with a mate further down the line whilst I was tipping this bucket of acid in. And uh, I, I, of course, I was young and tough. I wasn't bothered about PPE back in those days. And it wasn't until I felt the acid burning from kind of my lower chest down to my thighs that I realized something was wrong. Uh, and that was a bit of an epiphany for me. I, I, it was probably the embarrassment of having to do a hundred yard dash, stripping my clothes off and standing underneath an emergency drench shower in Scotland in the freezing winter that kind of made me realize that I'd got to think differently about safety. And uh, in fact, after the, uh, after the accident, no significant injuries, just uh, really a sense of uh, pride damage, I suppose, the group safety manager got me into cost assessments and risk assessments to show me that safety was important. And I kind of got quite turned on to the idea, to be honest, and, uh, and then switched to, uh, from, from engineering into safety with the standard route, uh, IOSH membership, NEMOSH qualification, and then carried on from there and uh, picked up a, a bachelor's in safety management an MVQ in learning and development, and then master's degrees in psychology, behavior, and law, and then a doctorate in leadership and culture change. So, um, so I guess that's a, a quick version of how I got into safety uh, and where I've been going over the last 24 years. Mm. What do you think the, the, the you must have, you must have like a, a passion for it because I mean, if we look at the amount of stuff that that you do within safety, like, you know, you're a professor uh, of leadership and culture and now the president of IOSH, you know, you, you're, you're running RMS Switzerland. Um, you, you must be doing loads of speaking gigs, etc. cetera. You, you must be absolutely, you know, jam packed doing safety. So where, where does that, does that drive come from that incident or is there just a general love of it or is that take grown over the years or all of the above? It's probably a combination of all of those things. Yeah. Um, I mean, the accident 24 years ago was a switch on to the idea that safety is important. 
I, I, I'm very lucky that I, I, I truly love the work that I do. I, I, in my consulting business, I get to travel the world. I've, I've been in more than 120 countries now and almost 50 so far this year. I work with fantastic people who really want to make a change uh, in their organizations. I've got a great team of people around me in RMS and, and, and we have fun working together and, and, and love the relationships that we have. Um, and I, I, I love the idea that I can use my experience and my knowledge to help others grow and develop themselves and their businesses a little bit more. It's, that's a real privilege for me. Mm. So it's kind of grown over the years then, to a point. I see what you mean. It can be, it's that relationship building and, 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 and that it just becomes addictive sometimes when you're traveling around talking to different customers and different people and you can see that kind of value for it. And looking on the, the RMS Switzerland, it looks like you've got a fascinating team um, there. I was, I was surprised by... Um, the gentleman that did your illustrations in Accent Zero, the description of him on the website, I thought was quite funny. Uh, yeah, Edward, yeah, he's a, he's an unusual chap. He's he's a business visualizer, so he sees what other people can't see, and and it's great working with Edward. He he's able to draw fantastic sketches in real time yeah. of what's being discussed, and it's a it's a great way to to represent a summary of of an activity that we do. Yeah, I love the road, the roadmap he did in Accident Zero across the two pages. Like, I think that really, uh, I've always said for a long time, like culture is so complicated. It's such a long for everyone just think culture, culture, culture. But, and that roadmap, I thought, just really put it into, into content, you know, pitch, pence, thousand words. And I, when I saw that, I was like, wow, that's a great bit of work. Yeah, it was fun to work with on that project. And in fact, um, you can download that roadmap from from accidentsdozero.com. You can can get it for free. Just click the button in the top right and then you can get a big poster version of it. And people are using it as a kind of tool for toolbox talks or shift start meetings to to get, uh, get teams thinking about some of the elements of what culture is and what they might do with it. Mm, I didn't know that. I'll get the link and I'll put that in the description for anyone else that wants it. In, in your books, then, you're, you're quite, um, you know, in your books, and not just your book, to be honest, but like the book you did with uh, Judith as well, Dan Judith Hackett, and in your uh, president-elect speech and your president speech, um, you don't really pull your punches on the myths and the media uh, around health and safety. And in, in, in Mind Your Own Business in particular, you dedicate nearly 30 pages uh, to address myths of health and safety, um, you know, I think I, you know, I've got an opinion on it and I, and I can think I know where you're coming from, but it'd be interesting to know why, you know, you thought we need to dedicate 30 page for it and need to mention it in your, in your, in your speech. This is obviously something that's quite important to you. Um, what, why is that so, so important? Yeah. So look, this isn't necessarily about um, a calculated effort to say, let's have 30 pages on <laughs> myths or, or negative stigma of safety, but I'm absolutely passionate about, the need for OSH professionals to push back mm. against this tide of negative stigma that, that mm. sits around our profession. Um, wh- whether it's articles in, in the daily newspapers or, or societal perceptions of health and safety, we've, we've, got a, we've got a role to play. Every one of us, not, not just uh, people that write books or happen to be presidents of, of an organization, but every single OSH practitioner needs to, needs to be able to feel that they can stand up and, and stand with their heads held high saying, I, I work in a really important profession, uh, helping organizations to, to create more value in their organizations and ensuring that people go home without harm. Mm-hmm. And, and for some practitioners, that's not possible. They, they feel browbeaten and, and, and ridiculed and criticized because they're working in what's become known in the UK as elfin safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there's, there's no place for mocking of this profession. There really mm-hmm. isn't. So, uh, yeah, I, I won't pull any punches in defending the profession and the practitioners that work within it. Uh, mm. And uh, I guess I'm just using my voice in the way that that I can do most easily for me to to try to challenge some of that and to try to push back. And, uh, and whether it's in a presidential address for IOSH or whether it's in one of my books or, or in my weekly LinkedIn columns, uh, I'm, I'm keen that, that we start to paint a brighter picture and... and mm. To be honest, this kind of became clear to me a few weeks ago. I was, I was at a, a business function, a dinner party. There was about 20 people sitting in the room, and the guy next to me said, what do you do for a living? I said, oh, I work in health and safety. And he looked at me and kind of hesitated for a moment and said, hmm, it's 
been raining a lot recently, hasn't it? <laughs> and uh, I was kind of stumped by this. And, and over the course of the evening, of we, we, we didn't talk about health and safety. So in the, the taxi back to the hotel, I was thinking, what happened here? And as a psychologist, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in how people's minds are, are, are working. So I tried an experiment a couple of days later where at another dinner event, someone next to me said, what do you do for a living? And I said, I work in human dynamics. And they said, wow, that sounds fascinating. What is it? I said, well, it's about engagement and leadership and motivation and behavior and culture. And I talked about all of the things that I do in my work without using the phrase health and safety. Mm. Uh, and this lady was, was absolutely gripped by this conversation as we talked for a good couple of hours about health and safety without using that phrase. So the, the, the stigma is there. I think we're pushing back against it collectively in the UK and beyond. Uh, but there's more to be done. So I, I, I think I'd, I'd like to see more OSH practitioners standing up and challenging, perhaps in the way that you do too, uh, mm. some, some of these pushbacks and, uh, and stigmas that sit around the profession. Yeah, I think, I think that's massively important. It's funny that example you give. I think every health and safety practitioner can probably give another example of that story. Mine was always in the rugby club, you know, oh, what do you do? Or builder, what do you do? Plus, or on this. And everyone's like, oh, all right, okay. What do you do? Health and safety. All right, see you later. And it just, it really does stop the conversation. It's such a shame. Um, but I mean, I've, I did a I did a little spe uh, speech in a local school a while back and and um, all the kids were like it was quite funny because the kids you know they're very honest aren't they young young kids are very full of banter and all that and it was a great laugh but it was it was just funny to when you start to explain actually how many pies you get to put your finger in as a health and safety professional you get to see every facet of the business um, so many people don't understand this, you know, you get to talk to so many different people, you get to work everywhere, like everywhere in a business, uh, influence at the top, influence at the bottom. And some of the kids are starting to think like, well, actually that sounds really interesting. And I remember one young man was like, you know, how, how do you get to, um, get to that point? You know, how do you learn about risk and stuff? And I said, you, you probably do it already. I said, how many times do you, you lied to your mum, you know, or been late when you come home or something like that? or bought beers in the pub when you shouldn't have, or something like that, oh yeah, quite a lot, you're risk assessing, you're doing it all the time. And it was just fascinating these, watching these kids kind of come round, but it took me a good hour and a half to get them to listen. At first it was just laughing and joking. Yeah. Something else that you're quite, again, don't really pull your punches on is, is a kind of burdensome and kind of bureaucratic approach that maybe some of us subconsciously do or or the, the business or the environment kind of, kind of forces us into that position or, you know, I, I, I don't think, I don't think a lot of self and safety professionals go in with the aim of being bureaucratic or burdensome. Um, but but the, it, there is so much of it. it you, you see it absolutely everywhere. And, and again, that's something that you talk about quite a lot. And um, I wonder how many health and safety professionals hold their hand up. I mean, I thinking back to, my first role in health and safety, I remember we had an incident with uh, it was with a drill or something like that, and I can't remember uh, specifically what happened. It was only a little incident, but as a result, um, I came up with this amazing idea of, uh, of a check sheet for our hand tools and fill out the check sheet. Um, one check sheet got done about a year later when I went back on a paper reduction exercise and there was still a stack of printed check sheets that I'd spent months, you know, printing and getting ready, all covered in dust, never been done, but the checks were being done. So when I went back to it, I thought, oh, okay. So I think we can all hold our hands up and maybe say, you know, at times we've been bureaucratic, we've been burdensome, but like, it's probably an obvious question as to why it's so important to you, but is it, is it something maybe you see a lot still? at your level look um yeah I, I i see a lot of uh i see a lot of paperwork and administration in safety even in uh some of the world's largest organizations i i, I was visiting with uh the general manager of a, a factory that has four thousand people in it a couple of weeks ago and he was proud to show me their safety management system which spanned the entire wall of his office and had 48 folders in it uh, and uh, just like your checklists uh, his were also covered in dust in, in these folders. And he couldn't find anything that I asked for. He, he, um, he was struggling under the, the, the weight of all of this paperwork. I, I, think, I think we have become uh, too compliance driven in, in health and safety more broadly around the world. And that's understandable. You, you, we can work 
we we need a a framework of uh, we need a framework of of, of good well, you, rules you, and laws. You cut out there, mate. Ah, yeah. Just um, when you said we become more compliance driven, it cut out. Um, so if you start again from there, I can sort it out post edit. Cool. So essentially, just... starting the answer again. Uh, yeah, you literally just said um, in in the world we've become more compliance driven, and then it froze. So if you just start from there again, I can cut it post edit. So, so look, um, in the world, I think we've become more compliance driven and we can work out why that is. It's, it's because there's a lot of legislation out there that, that asks for specific things in health and safety at work. Uh, and that legislation is really important. We, we need a structure of rules, a framework on, on which to, to work out how to manage risks in the workplace. But the interpretation of those rules uh, can be variable. So uh, I, 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 I think you know, I've been guilty of this. If I think back 20 years as I entered this profession, I thought it was all about compliance and checklists. Uh, and um, I, I, like you, would create checklists and documents and procedures uh, and audits and take them to, to, to my stakeholders at that time, which were managers in, in, in big multinational organizations. Uh, and I probably did my fair share of pissing them off, to be honest. I, I, I suspect that uh, you know, I was the guy that they loved to hate. That the safety <laughs> guy turns up on site, and everybody thinks, "Oh no!" Uh, and I, I probably didn't do myself many favors back, mm. back in those days. But I, I believed passionately that compliance was what it was all about. And it, it, it's taken me a number of years to realize it's not about compliance. It's about ensuring people go home without harm every day. Mm. Uh, and in order to do that, we need to engage. Uh, not just the heads of people, their understanding that compliance is important, but their hearts, their mm -hmm. minds, their guts. Uh, and, and we need to connect with them emotionally as, as well as behaviorally. So, um, look, I, I, I think we've seen in the UK, British government, successions of British government, trying to attack what they've called, in, in David Cameron's terms, the health and safety monster. Uh, Cameron reckoned that health and safety was holding back British business. And mm -hmm. before him, Tony Blair talked about having bonfires of red tape to get rid of health and safety regulation. Uh, and, and I don't think we should play into the hands of the government here. Instead, I think we should say we need legislation. It's important, but it's the interpretation of that legislation mm. by the OSH practitioners that's absolutely crucial. Uh, and I think the role of practitioners here then is simply to act as interpreters, interpreters of what the law says, uh, and, uh, and interpreting or translating what the law says into clear and practical actions that can be achieved by operational managers and leaders. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, even even in more recent times, you know, red tape was a big driver in Brexit. You know, you heard that loads and and you just, it's, it's heartbreaking as a health and safety professional to hear people kind of, in political people to be standing up and saying, oh, we've got to get rid of the red tape and hang on a minute, what red tape? You know, I, I genuinely believe that our regulation system is not is nowhere near that burdensome. Like you say, it's the interpretation. And the um, HSEs work on the, the blue tape report, um, which are currently going through at the moment. You know, that yeah. kind of that puts it into a nutshell, really, is that it's, it's nothing to do with, with regulation. And, it, and we see it all the time. You get, I always get people phoning me up and be like, oh, James, I've just had some guy come in. He just said, there's this new re legislation, this new law about, about fire doors or whatever. And I'm what laws? The law hasn't changed in, in years. What, what laws are you on about? Well, no, he's on about British standards or he's on about this guidance or that guidance. And you're like, it's just, mm. sometimes it's maybe interpretation. It's a language you will use as well. Um, I think and I, I have a massive stick at my, um, my rear end about the phrase compliance. And you're right. We are in this kind of compliance culture and it, it really, it really kind of baffles me as, as what is compliance? What, so are we saying that if there was no law there, we wouldn't do anything or we start sending children back up chimneys again and crawling under machines. I don't, I don't think we would. Um, but I think it, it communicates something more to our, our employees that we're only doing this because the law says do it. We're not doing it because we actually genuinely want to keep you safe. It surely is not conducive to a very nice workplace, is it? Well, well, it, it may not be, but of course then that's your perception and, and, and perhaps my perception too. Let's be clear, though, there are some organizations that are all about compliance, and that's what they want to achieve insofar as health and safety at work. 
And, and that's okay. We, we have mm. clients that come to us and say, help us improve our safety. We want to become fully compliant with all the laws. Now, that's not the kind of work that we like to do. We prefer to be around behavior change and, and, and culture transformation and leadership. So, so we, we push back from, from those clients. So it's okay if the organization's main aim is full compliance with safety laws. Another organization's aim might be safety excellence. Another organization's aim might be zero accidents. And it's perfectly fine to have different aims. Uh, whilst I'd, I'd like, from a personal perspective, I'd like all organizations to, to reach a level of safety excellence where they could share best practices with others around the world and everybody going home without harm every day, I understand through my work as a consultant and, and I guess in, in maturing my own philosophies over the last three decades that not everybody is the same and, and, and that's all right. Mm, that's a good point. What, what's it like organizations like IOSH and, and, and similar organizations, we talked about maybe it's the interpretation of, of health and safety practitioners, interpreting the law and, and implementing it and how they see fit. You, what, what kind of role do IOSH have to do then and, and similar organizations to be able to, to to nip that in the bud you know that kind of over-the-top practices that health and safety gone mad you know it's a, it's a big role as, as part of IOSH to be able to nip that kind of thing in the bud surely it's a big responsibility sure so uh, so look IOSH is always uh, on the forefoot uh, around pushing back against negative stigma it, it, it's always uh, trying to lead the way as the global voice for uh, OSH practitioners, now nearly 50,000 members in 130 countries of IOSH. Uh, so IOSH recognizes its role as, as, as leading the way, as, as shining the light in the direction that, that practitioners uh, could, could be heading. Um, we, we've got a set of, of behavioral standards, of course, at, at, at IOSH. Uh, we've got codes of ethics for, for how practitioners should behave. Uh, and there's also a lot of support too available on the website iosh.com for free that practitioners can download and think about their skills. We, uh, we, we've also got uh, self-assessment protocols there where we can think about our own skills and attributes. And, uh, and I think this is a, a, an important step for, for the institution to do that. Of course, there are other institutions, mm -hmm. uh, people like the IISM are, are doing some similar things and doing some great work too. And with another hat on, I'm chairman of the board of the Institute of Leadership and Management. And, and we're trying to think about uh, practitioner development or CPD in a similar way. We've just launched uh, a new leadership self-assessment there that you can complete on our website at the Institute of Leadership and Management. And, uh, and I think this is probably a trend that practitioners in, in OSH are asked to think more about their leadership skills. And leaders and managers are being asked to think more at least by forward-facing OSH practitioners about their health and safety responsibilities so um so i, th I think there's a, a bit of movement in the right direction here mm. yeah i, I mean per personally i feel like it is a bit slow and, and this is kind of lead me on to my next question but and i think a good example of that is is, is, is herself dame judith hackett i think if you look at her work that was produced when she was running the HSE she she in my opinion never met her but from from what I can see from her work she's a very kind of reasonable and practical based person you know that addressing the myths and and and, and emphasizing practitioners and being encouraging them on being reasonable being practical and it not being burdensome but I mean that was a long time ago when when Jane Judith Hackett was doing that and and, and I just feel like you know, what's it going to take now, like, you know, for us to be able to, because she's moved on to bigger and better things now, and, and, and we're still turning this wheel, and sometimes for me personally, I feel like it's just flogging a dead horse. Um, there are no dead horses to be flogged in this podcast, James. <laughs> um, so, so let's stay focused on, on, uh, on Judith. Judith and I have been friends for, for many years, and in fact, her very first day on the job uh, leading the HSE, she spent it with me as I was chair of the Edinburgh branch of IOSH at the time. And I, I recall picking Judith up at Edinburgh Airport and driving her out to the, the meeting venue where I asked her what her first thoughts were about health and safety in the UK and what she aimed to achieve. And, and she said, look, the big challenge as far as she could see it was around operational leaders and managers not understanding what health and safety was. Uh, and she shared some ideas for some, some pretty big activities in that first day, which 
really kind of resonated with some of the things that I was thinking at that time. And, and, and yes, undoubtedly in the eight years that, that she led the HSE, she made some fantastic changes that, that I really believe have, have had some super impact across the UK and, and helping the UK become known as, as one of the most important nations around the world for improvements in, in health and safety. Is there more to be done? Of course there is. And, and, and if Judith were here today, she would say exactly the same thing. It, you know, since she left the HSE, Judith and I have been working together uh, in RMS and uh, we, we wrote a book together a couple of years ago called Mind Your Own Business. Uh, the subtitle of the book was What Your MBA Should Have Taught You About mm -hmm. Workplace Health and Safety. Uh, and, and this kind of points to what I think is the challenge that, that, that you're articulating. You know? There's so much more to be done. And I think the key to unlocking it is helping leaders understand what they can do. Mm. So, so I see this in a kind of uh, game of two halves. There's the contribution of the OSH practitioner, and then there's the contribution of the operational or organizational leaders. Now, most leaders that I've met over the last 25 years in safety uh, say to me things like, safety is really important. I'm really committed to safety. And then when I say, so what do you personally do to lead that commitment? They say, well, uh, I tell people to be safe. <laughs> or I, I tell people that our priority is safety first. Uh, and it kind of stops there. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is understandable. You know, it's easy to, to, to laugh at it and say, well, <laughs> you know, these leaders need to do more. But the mm -hmm. challenge that we try to tackle in the book, uh, Judith and I, the challenge we try to tackle is that there isn't a single MBA program on the planet that features health and safety as a core module. Mm. So leaders accelerate and elevate their career, but never have any formal qualification or learnings around what health and safety really is. So they get to this point of, of elevation in their organization. And I suspect it might be quite challenging for them to turn around and say to the OSH practitioner, hey, look, I'm really, I'm really interested in safety and I'm committed to it, but to be honest, I don't have a clue what I should be doing. Mm. Uh, that must be a challenging conversation to have. And, and I suspect most leaders shy away from it. Mm. In, in fact, this week, I'm trying to tackle it. I'm, I'm here in uh, just outside Paris in a city called Fontainebleau, uh, where the INSEAD Business School is. And I, I, I lead a program here called Leadership and Safety Culture. Uh, and we, uh, we run it five or six times a year in cohorts of 30 people at a time, all senior leaders, directors and vice presidents of, of operations from organizations around the globe. And in this week's class of 30, we have 17 different nationalities. And these leaders turn up for a week here with us. Uh, and over the course of the week, they think about health and safety from a different perspective. Uh, we, we, we get them understanding what they can do to lead the step change in culture, uh, to, to demonstrate and role model the right behaviors. Uh, and to get them thinking about what safety looks like for them in their organization. Uh, and I think we, we all have an opportunity to do that, whether we're professors at business schools or practitioners in organizations. The big challenge is how do we help leaders become more engaged in doing safety and health at work in a way that's meaningful and has positive impact? Mm. Yeah. Was, was that like, uh, was that like a, na a natural connection then between you and Judith? How did that come about over a bottle of wine? You went, Do you know what? We should probably write this down. Or, oh. <laughs> um, yeah, look, Judith and I have very different styles, uh, but we have the same view. We, we, we both saw the challenge and had been talking about it for several years and, and wondering what we could do. And indeed, we, we, we tried to do several things together, including... Um, over a couple of years at the IOSH annual conference, I, I ran something called The Big Debate, where we had a panel of experts talking about the real big issues in safety at the time uh, and polling real-time questions from the audience. And uh, it, it's, it's quite a thing to have 800 people in an audience throwing questions directly into a panel like that. And it was after one of those panel debates that, that Judith and I uh, left the London Excel and, and went for a walk along the waterside. And, and we sat at the side of the water drinking a glass of wine <laughs> uh, on a nice, uh, nice sunny evening, talking about why is it that operational leaders don't get it? Uh, and, and we concluded that night that it was because their formal development programs didn't contain anything on health and safety. So we, we decided to write a book that would help leaders think about safety in a different way. And that's where the Mind Your Own Business book was, was born. Um, mm. you, you know, the concept of the book, you, I know that you've read it, James, is pretty simple. 
what we're saying is leaders need to mind health and safety in the same way they mind everything else in their business in their own particular style and it's it's about getting the balance just right you know we leverage the the kids uh, kids fairy story about goldilocks and the three bears where the porridge is too hot too cold and then just right uh, and really that's a metaphor for health and safety sometimes health and safety is too hot we get mm. practitioners and organizations that load in too much bureaucracy and admin and sometimes it's too cold it, it, it's not enough and, and that leaves gaps in the management system that allows accidents to happen people get hurt so the book tries to help people level up and get that balance between safety and productivity just right. Mm. Do, you, do you ever find people struggling with that kind of just right? I mean, I, I understand it 100% and, and 100% on board, but sometimes when explaining it to people, maybe health and safety practitioners or business managers, senior leaders, um, you say, no, no, we don't want to get as safe as possible. We want to get it this just right. And sometimes I find that just doesn't sit comfortable with people. People don't understand. Well, hang on a minute. You don't want to make it as safe as possible. And you're like, no, we just want to get it just right. You know, we don't want to become too much over the top. And, you know, and a good example is I put a post on LinkedIn a, a while ago. Um, and I would say 60% of me people were on board and the other percentage just absolutely berated me when I said, we need to stop just using PPE for the sake of using PPE. And the example I used was we're doing a health and safety video for promote our product or our service and everyone's wearing all PPE, but you're sitting in an office. Why are you wearing PPE? You're just exacerbating the perception, you know, use it when you need to use it. Stop going over the top. And, and my example is you've got to get safety just right. So that there is a time to use that high vis there is a time to use that hard hat but sitting in this video is not unless you're in that kind of environment and um a lot of people are still like well we've eliminated all that will not eliminate we've reduced this risk as much as possible why would we not still wear the ppe and stuff like that do you ever, do you ever find that that challenge of, of kind of a back at you from from getting it just right no i don't uh, um no, I, I, my work with, with business leaders around the world, they, they seem to get this concept of, of getting it just right. And, but I'm a little bit confused, to be honest, with, the, with your suggestion of getting things as safe as possible, because I, I think that is part of making it just right. You know, this okay. isn't about eliminating all risks, which mm -hmm. is maybe what you, you, you were thinking of. We're not suggesting that every risk needs to be eliminated here. Mm -hmm. you know, risks are a natural part of life. Um, but we need to manage those risks to, to a level that is as safe as possible in a way that's just right for the organization. So I think there's an extension of the point here. Now, PPE for PPE's sake and, and wearing high-vis vests inside offices, I, I don't know why that is. Perhaps it's organizations that want to try to make a blanket rule that, that's easier to, uh, to monitor and then check compliance with. But, but no, I, I, I think... Um, I think we need to row back from some of this stuff and, and, and put risk back in context and take a pragmatic look at what risk assessment really is. And our aim here should be about building risk literacy, helping people to understand what risk really means uh, and, and what controls look like uh, in order to be able to get them and their colleagues to go home without harm. So, so I think this is perhaps around understanding. It might be around awareness and, and it's certainly about communication. Okay. Okay, one, one last one from me, and then we've got a load of questions from uh, the listeners as well. So the, the last one from me is, um, in, in your speech at the point where the president of IOS, you're talking quite heavily, you want to focus on being more international uh, influenced. IOS, like having been looking at other countries and how can we help other countries kind of, as you say, you know, the UK and, and other countries similar are the leaders in health and safety or one of. So, so try and use that to influence other people, which is a very, you know, noble thing to do 100%. But are we, are we, are we ready for that? I mean, we're still, we're still having 130 to 140 average uh, fatalities a year for a long time. We're kind of stuck on this plateau. We're struggling to, to break that plateau. Um, you know, are, are we actually ready to, to go and um, talk to other countries? But then I kind of think about uh, a book that I'm reading since I wrote this question, um, which is interesting. I add this now um, by Matthew Syed about diversity of 
of, of ideas, Rebel Ideas is a book and talking about, and the example I've used loads on this podcast now is um, they, they had a group of American people and a group of Japanese people looking at a fish tank. Uh, long story short, the Japanese people saw the context, they saw the background. When they were asked to describe it, they described the background, they described the plants, they didn't really describe the fish. The American people described the fish and didn't describe the background. So the point being that if you only hire Americans, you only see the fish. If you only hire Japanese, you only see the background. You never see the fish. So if you put the two together, you see the whole picture. And for me, I love simple ways of explaining stuff, and I really like that. So since writing this question, I thought, well, maybe it's not just about us being influencers to other countries, but actually being able to get them to help us as well, because maybe there's something in Asia that's going to transform us and help us break the plateau. Uh, I'm thinking out loud here, but but I'll be interested on your opinion and why you think we we need to start focusing more internationally. I think that's a phenomenal question, and it feels like <laughs> there's about five or six questions in there. So I'm going to that's try true. my very best <laughs> to answer the ones that I, I think I picked up, but but jump in if there's something that I'm missing. Uh, in my presidential speech at IOSH, I said that I I, I want us to think more global, uh, uh, and there's there's a couple of things that sit behind that. But the first is that outside of the UK, IOSH is not particularly well known. We, we've built memoranda of understanding with organizations in Australia, New Zealand, Africa, the States, Canada, uh, and in other countries too. Uh, and we continue as an organization to, to build collaborative partnerships with organizations to raise the, the game on health and safety at work around the world. We've got nearly 50,000 members in 130 countries, so there's an obligation here on IOSH to support their members wherever they are. And I think that's good. What I'd like to see, uh, and what I strive for in my presidential year, is that IOSH is recognized more by more people around the world. Uh, and your, your second part of the question is, well, do we have the right to do that, given that there are still a, a large number of people losing their lives at work in the UK every year? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, yes, we have the right to do that. Uh, and and uh, this is not about waiting until the UK has zero fatalities and then saying, now the UK has zero fatalities. We can tell the world how great we are. It's not about that at all. Mm. It, it's about sharing the learnings that the UK has made and other countries too, uh, so, so that others can benefit from those learnings. I, I believe that nobody is perfect, myself included. I make plenty of mistakes in my life. But does that mean that I'm not able to share learnings with people? No, in fact, from my mistakes, I can get some learning that might be useful for me and, and for others. So, so I think we, we have a right to share learnings, whoever we are, wherever we are, whether that's an individual or an institution like IOSH. I think IOSH has an obligation to share, a duty to share too, because it strives for a healthier, safer world of work. Uh, so as the world's leading voice for health and safety at work, it's part of the remit to share good practice. Mm. Now, you mentioned that we're on a plateau in the UK, uh, and that may be so, but it's not necessarily a bad place to be. Uh, one of the learnings that I've got over recent years is that organizations get to a plateau in their performance where they've made an improvement and it levels off for a period. And they start to panic, saying, well, we haven't made an improvement for a while. Actually, I think there's another way to look at this. A plateau is stable. It's showing that you've got a level of control to a certain degree. Now, if we think outside the box here and go to the dictionary and look at the word plateau, it would tell us something like a flat leveled off expanse of land. And we could think of a plateau, uh, an iconic plateau, for example, uh, Ayers Rock in Australia uh, or Table Mountain in Cape Town. Now, if you've ever been to the top of Table Mountain or, or Ayers Rock, and had a look around, you get this amazing 360-degree panorama. Mm. Imagine if we were on our performance plateau now in safety, and we stood there with that stability and looked around to a 360 panorama. That's a pretty important place to be, where we can gather lots of nuanced data now about where we are, why we're there, and what we might do to move forward. And, and then you went on to talk about um, Matt Syed's book, Rebel Ideas. This guy has some fantastic thinking. His earlier book, Black Box Thinking, was, was super, and I reference it in a couple of, of my books. But Rebel Ideas, I think, is, is useful because we're, we're in a VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. 
uh, right now, and, and disruption is the order of the day. So we're looking for we're looking for rebels or mavericks or disruptors or innovators, uh, and we've seen countless versions of them. Whether it's uh, Uber upsetting the taxi service global uh, globally or Netflix upsetting Blockbuster and, and how we watch movies. I think there's a role for us practitioners to think outside the box a little bit, to become a bit more rebel or a bit more maverick. But it needs to be contextual. Just like your Japanese and American fish tanks, we need to be able to see the bigger picture uh, and, and look for the diversity that's in there. So you know, I think your point is very well made in your comment that this is not just about the UK saying, look at us, we're going to share everything with you. Here it is, the UK is the best. But having the humility to say, and in return, what can we learn from you? Whether that's Japan or the States or, or, or Ethiopia. You know, I was in Russia last week working with the, the CEO and top 100 execs at, at the world's biggest oil and gas company. And, and, and they, were, they were coming to me saying, we want to learn from you. And it, it's very humbling that one of the world's biggest companies wants to learn from a, a, a guy from Scotland. Uh, but in return, I said, great, I'll, I'll share what I know, but you have to share something with me. What, what's working well for you? What's the big challenges that you have? Mm. And I left that session feeling completely fulfilled and, and as if I'd grown a little bit more from what they'd given to me during that session. Mm. So I guess in, if, if there were five questions in there, I've turned it into quite a lot <laughs> of answer, but the point is don't get too nervous if you're on a plateau. Mm. Take the opportunity to look around and work out what's really going on. Think about what's good about what you're doing and try to do more of that. Share it with others and ask for them to, to share with you so that you can get some new ideas on how you can continue to drive the improvements. That was a very good answer to a very big question. Well done. <laughs> You've been doing this for a while. Um, no, I, I like the way you're looking at the plateau thing, actually. like We wouldn't be able to... to work so you know have those rebels have those just disruptors and talk to other countries and get other ideas if we were too busy dealing with thousands of fatalities a year so the the plateau gives us that chance to relax i like yeah. that. i like that okay let's go into some questions from the listeners then so um i had a chat with uh, rebecca you actually replied to rebecca's uh, comment but rebecca walpole on linkedin um she she had some concerns and she didn't directly ask a question, but I could kind of I could kind of relate with her, so I, I kind of pulled something out of there. But she was basically saying that she doesn't feel like a chartered membership of IOS truly reflects the integrities, the qualities, the skills, etc., that she deems to be a chartered member of IOS. And she based this on on what she'd seen from chartered members, what she's. Uh, dealt with and experienced like we all do you know we base our opinions on our experiences etc um and 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 i thought that kind of works quite closely with the review that i should do in now around the competency framework and i thought it was interesting that rebecca said that she'd actually left i she'd she'd cancelled her membership um and was considering coming back since you were put as president and it's just interesting that I was literally about to not re renew mine and and the same thing happened and I found out about yourself and I thought I'll hold on for a little bit and see what happens um but I just thought it'd be interesting to maybe put that across to you one for feedback but two to to in, to get your opinion on that yeah um I, I recall that chat with Rebecca and in fact we had a chat offline uh to, oh, to talk about her thoughts in more detail look look in simple terms James IOSH, like any organization, will not always satisfy everyone all of the time. Yep. Um, I, I think whether we're an organization or an individual, we're never going to please everybody all of the yeah. time. Um, I'm, I'm delighted that, that Rebecca spoke up uh, about how she was feeling and, and, and your comments here too. And, and I'm also delighted that you've retained your IOSH membership and Rebecca has rejoined IOSH. Uh, I, I'm I'm not the panacea, by the way, for, for solving any, uh, any discontent of any previous member with, with IOSH. Uh, I'm, I'm just one man that happens to be elected as, as the president. Um, but IOSH is working hard right now in, in the competency review and the membership grades review to, to ensure that it's fit for purpose in order to take practitioners to the next level and into the future. And I think it's a really great thing. Um, uh, of course, there will be people from time to time that are not happy with 
the service they get, the support they have, or anything else, whether it's in IOSH or, or, or any other membership body or, or, or any other organizational part of life. Uh, and my advice to Rebecca, as it is to, to everyone else, when they're discontent with something, is to either choose to put up with it or, or choose to do something about it. Mm. And in fact, behind the scenes, Rebecca and I had a chat that led to her talking with Ayash about how she could. Oh, it's gone again. Work joining specialist committees. Oh, you went there. Sorry, mate. Just go from again. Uh, it led to Rebecca talking to Ayash about, and then you cut off. All Sorry. Right. No worries. So I had this conversation with Rebecca behind the scenes, and it led to her having a great conversation with, with Ayosh about how she could get involved. Uh, and, uh, and that's moving forward now, which is fantastic. And, and to be honest, I think that's the choice that we have. When we're discontent with something, we could choose either to, to say nothing and just put up with it or to, 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 to leave part of uh, whatever it is, or we can choose to say something, to speak up. Uh, and I think that that's perhaps a better way forward to to speak up to show what it is that we're concerned about and to, to, to take an active involvement in trying to resolve whatever it is that's causing the discontent for us mm. so it's my suggestion to anyone whether it's IOSH or another professional body or the organization that you're in or the social network that you have if something doesn't feel right find a constructive way to talk about that to, to offer to get involved and, and be part of the change mm. Yeah, I like that. Uh, and, and it reminds me, actually, I, I was listening to uh, Russell Brand's podcast and they were talking, had some gentlemen on about uh, politics and they were talking about that. And the gentleman made a really good point that actually made me do exactly what Rebecca's doing now um, and approach my local branch. Um, but he said, if you want to make change within your political party or, or whatever, you've got to have one foot in the party that you want to change and then the other foot outside in your party whatever your kind of your radical ideas are but you can't change with both feet outside of the and it reminded me of like that kind of crude saying that you, it's better to be in the tent pissing out than it is uh, out the tent pissing in kind of thing and um and, and i just thought that that's in a nutshell essentially what you just said there i think in my crude way of putting it <laughs> Okay, so the next question was from Fiona, which I thought was quite interesting. She'd listened to a lot of your stuff uh, since you were um, kind of come up to your, your presidency and, and et cetera. And she said she wants to ask you a question completely not related to uh, health and safety. So she wants to know what your morning routine is, including how you keep your hair so flawless. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, how I keep my hair so flawless? Well, it's it's funny. I um, for 20 years I I had no hair. I had a number one buzz cut for a long time, and uh, and I like the convenience of that. <clears throat> but about a year ago, my my uh, my 12 year old nephew Charlie said to me, Uncle Andrew, why don't you have any hair? Uh, and I said, Well, Charlie, I do have hair. I just like it really short. And he said, You've never had hair in my lifetime. And I said, Yeah, yeah, I know. You're right. Um, so we had a challenge. We had a challenge to, to both grow a hairstyle over the next couple of months. And then we would have a family competition judged by my sister to decide who had the best hairstyle. Of, of course, uh, Charlie won that. But, but I, uh, <laughs> in, the, in the year of learning how to use product and comb my hair and all these sorts of things I've never had to do for so long, I found that I quite like the change. Uh, so I'm not sure I've got perfect hair. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, a, a little bit of wax in the morning is my secret for that, if it's anything. Um, my morning routine is, it's, my morning routine is, 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 pretty, uh, is pretty straightforward. I do the same thing every day, seven days a week. Um, I, there, there are four things that, that, I, uh, four things that, that I focus on, um, and, and I'm happy to share those. I, I get up early. Um, People often say, how do you get so much done? How do you write so many books and be president of IOSH and be chairman of the board of the Institute of Leadership and Management and run your consulting business and speak at all these things? Um, I have the same 24 hours in my day as you do in yours and everybody has in theirs. I, I just, I, I find that I, I can get by on less sleep than, than others. So I sleep for six hours each day. Uh, that's my target at least. Uh, and I get up at six o'clock every morning and uh, my morning routine uh, I, I, I get up and, and the four things I do, I, 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 I make some movement 
as soon as possible. So that's some light stretching and, and some, some physical cardio movement, not too intense. Uh, I need light very early. So, uh, so most times of the year, I get straight outside as soon as I get up to, to get as much natural light into me as I can. Uh, of course, in winter months, that's a bit tricky. At six o'clock in the morning, it's still dark. So my solution now is I turn on the lights full and get as much light coming into my system as I can. The third thing is, is that I meditate uh, every day. And I, I take 15 minutes of, of meditation, doing a simple kind of body scan exercise and focusing on my breathing in that time. Uh, and then the final thing I do is, is a piece of reading. So every morning I read for 15 minutes. Uh, I, I read about four or five different books each week. So I'm I'm kind of focusing on those four things. So, so that's what I do. And then like most people, I have a cup of coffee and get on with my day. Fair enough. Fair enough. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of time. So I want to whiz through these questions and try and get as many as possible. Uh, Dan Wilkins also on LinkedIn um, wants to know what makes a great health and safety practitioner. and What can the industry as a whole build on and why? Um, what makes a great practitioner? I guess the, the, the understanding of your practice, having a depth of knowledge, having the ability to communicate that understanding clearly into practical ideas and actions that leaders and managers can understand and then, then put in place. Um, being able to do that in a positive way that inspires action yeah. rather than encourages a negative response. Mm -hmm. There's probably a whole bunch of other stuff too, James, yeah. but I guess I'm going to say the last thing is to do it with a smile on your face and realize that you don't need to be right all of the time. And, and it's a bit of a tough slog. I think having the opportunity to better smile and, and even laugh at yourself sometimes is, is mm. probably a good attribute too. I like that. That's good. Um, there's a good technical one from Christian, which is a bit loaded because his business is uh, slip safety services and he's been on this podcast, uh, he was one of, he was our first guest actually um but he uh, he said if you look at the overall health and safety performance in the uk over the decades we're clearly <laughs> in a much better place and the overall accident numbers are down however if you look at the attritional accident types such as slips trips and falls and manual handling these are pretty flat and therefore are increasing proportionality this is also seen in insurance claims what can be done to tackle this and I think you actually commented on this saying it was a good question. So I thought I'll make sure I ask this one. All right. Yeah, look, it's a good question, but it's a generic question, isn't it? So Christian has an interest in slips, trips and falls, but I, but I think the answer is, is, is going to be potentially useful for, for thinking more broadly. What can we do to reduce the number of slips, trips and falls accidents? Well, we can understand why they're happening. Uh, why are they happening? Well, it might be things like the floor surface is uneven or slippery or something like that. It might be that people are distracted. You know, I, I see, I see that we're turning into to zombies with our mobile phones. You know, there are people walking around in airports, uh, down pavements, and and around factories, holding onto their phone and, and tapping furiously away at it. Uh, I, I'm even seeing people using their phone as they go up and down stairs, and and in, in fact. I watched someone last week in an airport tumble down an escalator when they weren't watching where they were going with, with the mobile phone. They were too far ahead of me for me to be able to say anything or do anything. Um, so, so I think distraction from mobile devices is, is a challenge. So, so how do we reduce these things? We understand what's causing them, what the trends in behavior are, uh, and then try to think of creative and innovative ways to, to, to cause people to think differently about how fallible we all are as human beings. Mm. Yeah, I think Christian's got a really good, um, obviously, you know, his business is, is kind of slip safety and stuff like that. But he, he's kind of helped me personally go through a bit of a transition where I always was like, oh, you know, we've got bigger things to focus on than bloody slips. Forget slips. We'll deal with, with the proper stuff. And, and talking to Christian a lot. You know, it's the kind of, well, actually, let's break this down and actually look at it. And, it, and he's coming up with some real in, innovative ways, trying to work on be people's behaviors as well. Gives a lot of free information away as well, which I, I like. Um, uh, next one then from Greg Burgess, uh, also on LinkedIn. Uh, a question would be, what's being done um, and what more needs to be done to attract young future safety leaders for the profession? I think for me, this is, I, I really like this. This is something... 
I'm quite passionate about, you know, go to local schools and just saying, this is an awesome career you can go to. But the same as like you're talking about in an MBA and, you know, we don't even mention safety in there. When, when do we ever go to, kids go to like a recruitment uh, event, for example, um, after their GTSEs? And at what point does anyone sit there and be like, have you ever thought about health and safety? And you just think, what a shame that is. I think this is a great question. Uh, it, it's, it's close to my heart. Um, prior to setting up my consulting business, I, I, I worked as a health and safety manager for a big power company. Um, we, we created there a program called PowerWise, which was uh, an in-schools education program where our staff went around and trained kids about the, uh, the, the dangers and risks of electricity. Uh, and we worked in primary schools and secondary schools with programs aligned to the national curricula in, uh, in England, Wales and Scotland. So, so I really believe that we've got to start earlier getting safety onto the agenda, onto the curricula uh, in schools, colleges and, and universities. How do we do that? Well, we do it in a way that feels right to us. And, and in fact, I've, I've met many IOSH members and spoken to people on LinkedIn too who are doing things in schools and colleges because they believe it's the right thing to do and they're giving their time for free to, to to help younger people think differently about what risk and safety looks like and what a career in health and safety might look like. Um, I, I've been living in Switzerland for 10 years now and, and the Swiss culture is fascinating for thinking about things like safety. So uh, there are no pedestrian crossings that you push a button for and you wait for the light to change to red to stop the cars. In Switzerland, there are no lights, there are no buttons, there are just the stripes painted across the road. Uh, and, uh, and what happens is the pedestrian steps out onto the crossing and the cars stop. Uh, uh, and it's, it's brilliant in its simplicity and effectiveness. But the thing that really catches my eye is that it's absolutely customary to, to raise your hand and wave and nod thank you to the car drivers that have stopped for you. Uh, and this creates a sense of reciprocity. The, the driver stops for the pedestrian, the pedestrian says thank you back. Uh, and, uh, and this is taught to kids at a very young age. In fact, just a couple of days ago, I watched a kid that could perhaps be no more than five standing at the side of the road, looking carefully for vehicles and then deciding that it was safe to cross, stepping out confidently, watching where he was going and then thanking me as, as I had stopped for him. And this is dynamic risk assessment at its very best, isn't yeah. it? He's not relying on the beeping of, a, of an alarm or the, of the flashing of a green man. He's really thinking about risk for himself. And this culture of reciprocating with a thank you for, for, for the car driver looking out for the pedestrian safety is, is, is key. So my message, I guess, to Greg and to others is think about what you can do as an individual practitioner. Where can you influence? Can you get to a local further education college and, and talk about how cool and sexy and interesting the world of health and safety is? And, what you get out of being a practitioner? Is there something more you could do? Would you like to be a, a tutor in an evening class in, in, in health and safety at work? Have you got an idea for how you can present safety in, in a way that is more engaging, more attractive? Can, mm. can you set up a podcast? Can you, <laughs> can you write a blog? Can you, you know, that there are lots of ways that we can reach people. And, and, and now more than ever before with social media and, and internet devices, we can, uh, we can get messages out faster. So, uh, it, it would be interesting to see what, what listeners to this podcast come up with after, mm. uh, after the session. Yeah. Yeah. And I am actually interested to see what, if, um, how much feedback we get back from their questions. It's the first time we've, we've taken questions from the community and I, okay. I loved it. The whole thing was, was like interesting just to see, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking and going, talking to my, my wife, you know, who, I need to ask a person a question, blah, blah, blah. But actually just going out to all these different people and you get things that we never thought about. Um, so we'll do one last one and then we'll say goodbye. So from Robin uh, Maunder Cochram, who I hope I've said his name right, uh, from uh, the Netherlands, and he also came to us on LinkedIn. Um, he want, he's interested to know what kind of trends um, we should be keeping an eye on for health, safety, leadership. And he referenced like maybe um, like regulations becoming more specific or maybe deregulation. And I think it kind of ties in with what you were saying about, um, you know, the way Tony Blair talked about legislation and David Cameron as well. And I think, I think that's kind of what I hope, I think that I hope I've got this right, but I think that's what he's trying to say is, you know, what kind of trends should we be picking up on outside of our industry? Um, this is another great question, I think. Um, it, it would be easy to think about this and say, yes, there'll be a trend around regulation and, and we'll see 
more regulation or a tightening of regulation, or we might see some deregulation and, 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 and some more uh, self-management of risk. To be honest, that, that's just the ebb and flow, uh, mm. I think, that sets the context behind the profession. There, there will be new risk. We, we, we know that we see new risk categories coming in from time to time too, nanotechnology being one of them. That we know that the world of work is changing uh, and that humans are being replaced by robots and artificial intelligence. Uh, I, I teach at Caltech, the California Institute of Technology in Los Angeles, uh, and Caltech developed one of the most advanced robotics labs in, in the world. And in fact, Caltech right now have, have, a ro uh, have a robot running the Appalachian Trail in the United States, a, a long distance uh, hiking trail. Uh, and this robot is off out there in the wilderness running on its own. <clears throat> so, so, so the robots are coming and we need to be ready for them. But there's no use spending too much time thinking in the future. I, I, I think it's important to be scanning the horizon to work out what's likely to come towards us and when that's going to happen. But we can't lose sight of where we are right now. We've got to stay focused in the present, being mindful about what's going on, where we are right here, right now, in the organizations and the societies and communities that we're in, and thinking about what we can do now and into the short to medium term to really make a difference, as well as uh, this strategic view on, on what trends might be ahead. Uh, and, I, I, and I think perhaps it's, it's worth reinforcing the earlier point that I made, that this is not about revolution this is not about doing everything differently this is not about having a completely new view of what safety is this is about evolution not revolution mm. in many countries around the world including the uk we've made tremendous progress in improving the lives of people at work in terms of both safety and occupational health there's still a burden on us as, as a planet as a human society uh, around the costs of ill health and the impact that ill health and poor safety has on individuals, on families, on societies and communities at large, as well as in organizations. So there's more to be done. But we've made such tremendous progress and so many terrific learnings around the world that we mustn't forget those. And, and we must continue to think, how do we continue to improve rather than, oh my goodness, everything is wrong and there's still so much that we've got to do. Having more to do in the future, I think, is the exciting part of this role as, as an OSH practitioner. We'll never do ourselves out of a job, not even when the robots come. There'll, there'll still be something to do in health and safety and well-being. And for me, that makes it one of the most exciting career choices that anybody can make. And I'm very proud and privileged to be part of a profession that, that's leading OSH forward. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. I think what struck a chord with me is that evolution and revolution. I do feel, and I'm just as guilty as most, we're, we're looking for that revolution, aren't we? I think, you know, and we think about things like safety too and safety differently, and they all bring very good things for us to, you know, open our eyes and focus on other things. But I think we are all looking for that one new system to be like, yes, this is it. Copy and paste, apply to our business, fixed everything as opposed to just evolving from where we are i think that's a good point and i'm definitely guilty of that yeah and, and look this is natural right we're, we're human beings and, and we desire the latest coolest sexiest thing safety is not broken we don't need to do it differently mm. uh, eric holnagel will tell you that safety two is not an alternative to safety one yeah. we need safety one and safety two we need a framework of rules and structures and systems and we need to focus on behavior and leadership and culture uh, in, in my simple way of putting it in my in my book from accidents to zero i talk about creating safety not just preventing accidents and, and what i mean there is that if we focus on the inputs to safety excellence we'll get the output that by default means that we'll have less accidents and more people will go home without harm so Focus on the inputs, the quality and impact of leadership, the motivation, the encouragement, the engagement opportunities and safety, the clarity of communication, the uh, literacy around risk. If we focus on these sorts of inputs, uh, instead of worrying about what our latest accident rate is, we'll find that our accident rate starts to diminish uh, and more people go home every day without injury or ill health. Mm. Yeah, it's a great point. And we'll end it there. I know you're a busy man. So um, if, if people are liking how you talk and stuff, um, you just want to give us a quick uh, intro of how to get hold of maybe RMS Switzerland or yourself to kind of do work. And obviously, we'll put all the websites and stuff in the description as well. 
Um, sure. Yeah. Look, uh, you can find details about us at www.rmsswitzerland.com. You can send an email to team at rmsswitzerland.com. Uh, you could connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at ads underscore shaman or at uh, rmarshaman or at safe behaviors. Uh, you can find out more about our online certificate. Uh, it's an IOSH certificate in behavioral safety leadership that you can complete and get your IOSH qualification in as little as four hours um, by, by going onto the website or dropping us a note or, uh, or accessing us via any of the links that you share. And uh, if you want to get a copy of, of one of our books, you can go to fromaccidentstozero.com. And if you use the code RBS19, you, you'll get a whopping 20% off, off any of the books that are on there. So, uh, Lots of ways to do that. Awesome. And I think as well, I just spotted it this morning, but on the last um, IOSH magazine, your behavior-based safety course that uh, you, you just mentioned, there's a discount, I think, on the back page. I think that's about 15%. So, Yeah. In fact, it's, there's, a, there's a feature on the back cover of the latest issue of, uh, of IOSH magazine, and we've, we're running a special pre-Christmas offer. The program is normally £235, uh, which gives you lifetime access uh, as well as the IOSH qualification. Uh, you get lifetime access to all of the resources online uh, and the offer is just 199 pounds now mm. uh, for for iosh members when you quote quote code change one so uh, yeah that's uh, that's a great little program yeah i saw that this morning actually right thank you for coming on the podcast andrew you're welcome been a pleasure to talk with you and, and thanks to your listeners and uh, linkedin viewers for the questions too okay guys Thanks for listening. I hope you found that conversation with Andrew useful. Let me know what you think uh, in the comments below. If you're on YouTube, if you're on any of the other platforms, then just drop us a message. Come and connect with us on all the social media. The links are in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, try and think of three people right now that you can share this with that will help them. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast. If you're on the podcast platforms, it'll really help us out. It'll really help us get into other people's ear holes um, and help all the other businesses out there we can only demand better from the industry if everybody is talking about it share the podcast guys give us a rate and review if you do give us a review screenshot it and tweet us at rebranded safety or come find us on linkedin jen mcpherson or facebook even at rebranded safety all the links are in the description i hope you've enjoyed this i'll catch you next week safe